So sometimes we think, well, being honest is the best thing. But we have to be honest in a, in a way that can be heard and it's not hurtful at the same time. And sometimes you just have to be bold honest and sometimes mm-hmm. you have to be gentle honest. I'm Bryn Bamber, and this is the Courage Compass Podcast, where you get to hear from those who show up in uncomfortable conversations, bring fierce love into their relationships, and who are not afraid to show where they have failed. They may not run into burning buildings for a living, but they are brave beyond words, and they show that there's no stopping courage when it comes from the heart. For more stories and articles, check out www.couragecompass.org This episode, I'm chatting with the president of Yashodra Ashram, Swami Lalitananda. I lived in this community from 2012 to 2014, so I'm excited to catch up. Swami Lalitananda is the president of Yashodra Ashram, a yoga retreat and study center tucked in the Kootenai Mountains of British Columbia. She became a student of the ashram's founder in 1979 and served as her personal assistant and editor for eight years. She has been a Swami since 1996 and in 2014 was appointed as president. She is committed to leading the ashram into a vibrant and evolving future. So welcome, Samuel Tananda. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me. Oh, thank you. It's good to hear from you. So for the listeners who haven't heard of Yashodra Ashram, can you start by telling us what is an ashram, (laughs) What, what is a swami, and can you tell us a little bit about this this particular spiritual community? Sure. Um, well, an ashram is a spiritual center. It's based on a particular teacher's um, lineage of teachings. So this ashram, Yashodra Ashram, is based on the teachings of Swami Shivananda Radha. And she comes from the lineage of Swami Shivananda of Rishikesh, India. So my teacher, Swami Radha, studied in India in the mid-1950s and came back and and started this ashram in the early 1960s. So it's been here for more than 50 years. And a Swami, I think Swami Radha didn't really understand what an ashram was when she went to India in 1955, and I didn't really understand what a Swami was when I started in 1979. Um, and I think it, it may be different for different people and in different lineages. But in our lineage, it's, um, it's a dedication of your life to selfless service and to bringing forward the teachings of our teacher. So our teachings are um, based really on self-learning, um, always going deeper in understanding yourself. And so for me as a Westerner, that makes a lot of sense. I was a person who was interested in psychology, so I want to know about my mind. I want to know how I am in the world. And it's a process of always deepening that understanding of self and self in relation to what we call the light or the divine and and in relationship to the world around us. So, yeah, Swami is a, a renunciate in the sense that we... Um, 
we aren't in life for ourselves alone, so we want to offer selfless service rather than try to satisfy all our personal desires. Um, yeah, I remember talking with Swami Radha once in, in a little restaurant, and so we were both, she, she used to take me out to these really lovely places, and there was a heart player, and we were in California. And I, I was just very curious. At the time, I wasn't a Swami. I was working in California as a counselor. And um, I just looked around at all the people, and I had this question in my mind, why so many different people, and, and what is it that we're doing here? And um, she said, well, everyone comes to get their desires satisfied, and they try in many different ways to do that. And I feel like when we take the the uh, renunciate to become a Swami, it's like, okay, well, that's one possibility is trying to be satisfied and try and get as much out of life as I can. And the other one is to try and give back as much as I can to life. And I feel like that's what we're trying to do as Swamis. We're still very human and still working on ourselves, but we're, we're deep into our teachings and deep into how can we serve others and help them in the way that we were helped. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm really curious. I don't actually know know this really myself. Um, how how did you first find the teachings and find Swami Radha and and you know what what was it that drew you or or were you pushed into it or you know what's kind of that story of mm-hmm. your getting connected mm-hmm. to this. This work. Well, I, I, I that's that's a, that's a very good question, and and uh, in retrospect, I can see certain things lining up that um, pulled me in this direction. I'd always been interested in um, mind and things like dreams, but I didn't know how to understand them or kind of penetrate the meaning of these things. So I was open in that way and um, had an intuitive sense. I love poetry. I love literature. Um, and then my life started kind of crashing in on me, and I I uh, had done a lot of exploration, traveling, um, trying to get more experience in the world, trying to understand the meaning of everything. And... Um, yeah, then at one point, um, it was actually my, one of my sisters um, had uh, schizophrenia, and I ended up living with her and wanting to help her and realizing there my limitation, that I didn't know enough about the brain, about mind, about my own, how much I can help and how little I can help. So I came against this restriction in my ability to help, and it sort of drove me to find out more about mind, and I eventually ended up with another sister of mine who had actually been to the ashram. And um, I'd, done, I'd been doing my own yoga practice, but at the time I thought yoga was asana. I thought yoga was ha- <laughs> stretching. Yeah. So I found out from her that there was this place called an ashram, and there were swamis there, and I thought it sounded really weird. <laughs> and I definitely didn't want to go. And yet I was also <laughs> at a point in my life where... Um, not only was my sister schizophrenic, one sister, but I had had a breakup, and so I was feeling uh, emotionally down mm-hmm. and open to some help, I guess is what I would say. So I started uh, 
doing some work on a book called Kundalini Yoga for the West, which was all about asking myself questions, like in what way have I been hypnotized? What do I really know for myself? Mm -hmm. And just sort of penetrating self-inquiry sorts of questions. And so I found it very useful because there wasn't something I had to believe in. It was like I just had to, I was given tools to help me in questions. So I appreciated that open, again, that open-ended learning feel of, okay, well, I'm going to look at my life now, and what am I seeing, and do I have a choice in the direction I can go? So when I started to see the benefit of that, then I decided, well, this place that I really didn't want to go to, and swamis who seem very weird to me, because I don't know what they are, <laughs> I'm going to go try them out. And, um, yeah, so I came to the ashram and did the 10 days of yoga. And I found that that really gave me some groundwork. It uh, really helped me. Uh, Again, it helped me understand myself and my direction and kind of go deeply and look at what were the obstacles and what were the illusions that I was functioning under in my life and how was I creating my own pain and was there something I wanted to do with my life. So that kind of direction. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Kundalini Yoga for the West. So that I think that is that Swami Radha's the first book she ever wrote. Um, she wrote the Divine Light Invocation, but it was her first major book. Yes, okay, first major book. So I love. I mean, I love the the subtitle of the book: A Foundation of Character Building, Courage, and Awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of the listeners of this podcast are are in their lives and and they're they're wanting to live they're wanting to bring more courage on the everyday level so not necessarily becoming a fireman or you know doing something dramatic mm-hmm. but you know to be courageous in their mm-hmm. relationships yeah um in at the workplace mm-hmm. um and so I'm I'm wondering, uh, like, what do you think the teachings can offer or offer to to that type of person, someone who you know lives kind of a regular life and mm-hmm. and and but want wants to be more courageous? What would you say to them? Well, I think that we all are living ordinary lives. And if you're at an ashram or if you're in the world, it's the same thing. Like people are around you. You have work to do. You have to take action. There's family. There's um, colleagues. There's people that you don't know, right? So there's always um, interaction with other people. And one of the... One of the things, I I think it's like a blend. There's a word that we use, discrimination, but we use it in the sense of discernment. Like, what's the right action in this situation? So it's um, the expansion of awareness is really the foundation of our teachings. So um, it's willing to bring forward undercurrents, I think, is, is a big, courageous act. So if you're at work and something's bubbling below the surface or things are splintering, there's little divisions or cliques or there's bad feelings between people that aren't being spoken, 
to be able to address it and open it up in a way that's healthy that can then create a learning situation where people can speak and understand each other so that there can be some sort of resolution of that undercurrent. I think that that's really important, and it's something that that we work with all the time at the ashram because um, we work together here and we have different personalities, and so it's the same as at a job, it's, and yet we want to get this job done together. We want to um, be able to work things through. So, so to me, that takes courage and awareness. How do you, um, how do you bring something forward in a way that other people can hear it, <clears throat> and that they will want to, um, that they will want to, that they will invest in creating a healthier atmosphere in a work environment, for example. And um, sometimes it takes having a third party come in. Um, but I think the thing is not to just leave negativity festering or or accelerate it by just talking with other people in a or talking behind people's backs. Exactly. Yeah. So how can how can you help um create a healthy situation by um by opening it up and and speech is so important because it can become so hurtful. So sometimes we think, well, being honest is the best thing. But we have to be honest in a, in a way that can be heard and it's not hurtful at the same time. And sometimes you just have to be bold honest. And sometimes mm-hmm. you have to be gentle honest. Mm. So, mm. so that's where the d- discrimination comes in. Because it's not like one thing for all situations. Every situation is different. And yet I, I find when... Um, it doesn't really matter even how kind of escalated the situation has become. It's always going to get better if it can be addressed rather than ignored. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so bring, yeah, bringing it to the surface. Yeah, so the awareness, awareness of what would help here, awareness like does it work if I just talk to this person first and, and say what's happening for me? Can we start something together that can then expand out? Or do we all, this whole group, have to come together and and, and, and discover what are the undercurrents happening? Yeah, so in in that line, um, I, I have something that, that I think... I think some of the listeners will be able to relate to as well. I I am I am the person that many people confide in and and uh, people tell me their secrets. People people tell me tell me their secrets and and sometimes it's very sometimes it's very sweet, sometimes it feels very like a precious moment and then there are other times when people maybe they tell me something about somebody else they mm. I, I sometimes I feel like they're giving me a secret to hold that's not that's not mine that's not mm-hmm. mine to have mm-hmm. um, and so I'm wondering if this like is there something from the teaching that that could speak to that I'm wondering what you have done. Have you had any uh, any resolution or success that feels healthy to you, or do you always end up just holding it? 
I mean, I had I had a situation today. It was with something someone at school, and and she had told me something yesterday mm-hmm. that was a that was you know it was true it was on it was a true thing, um, but it was about someone that we both know, and it was something that had affected her. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was also you know telling me something about someone who I I am friends with as well. Mm-hmm. And, and so she told me the thing, and we talked about it. And then today she said. You know, I wasn't sure if I should have told you that. And I said, you know, I kind of said, it's, you know, it's fine or whatever. <laughs> and then and then I said, then I started to realize this is like a pattern and this is not the first time. And, I, and so I shared that. That to me felt healthier. <laughs> mm, right, right. So I, I think that that um, what you've done is, is um, taking responsibility not for what she's told you, but for how it's affecting you. And mm-hmm. that's always a good way, in a sense. Like if someone tells you something, and instead of saying it's fine, it's like, well, that actually makes me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Friend of that person. Mm-hmm. Then you're being honest, and you're not saying like you're a bad person for telling me. It's just like saying, I don't feel comfortable with this. So could we could we could we do something different or talk about something differently? Yeah. So being aware of how you actually feel and then being able to say it—that's courageous. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so I wanna I wanna talk about the temple. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> uh. So I think it, it was July 2014 that. The, there was the fire. Is that? Do I have the date? Uh, June. Yep. June. June. 2014. June, mm-hmm. June 2014. The the temple at the ashram. And for those people who haven't been to the ashram, it's um, it was a big white dome, and it was it was the it was the temple. It was a very important building. It was a very mm-hmm. it was a very special building. To the community, was destroyed in a fire. Yes. Um, and, and since then, a lot has happened since June 2014. Mm Um, so I want to start, I want to start with, um, you know, Swami Lili Shenanda, you had become president, I believe, was it in May? A couple of months before. You were, yeah, a few weeks. Mm -hmm. A few weeks. Okay. So you were very... You were stepping into a leadership role, um, just just had just stepped into a bigger leadership role for the community, mm-hmm. um, and then this very, you know, I mean, it was it was an emergency, it was a fire, mm-hmm. and then it was also it, but it was more than than that. Um, it was this building that was very important to a lot of a lot of people in the community was was destroyed. Um and so I'm wondering, I mean, uh, I think it, it, I think it must have taken courage to lead the community through that part uh, of um of the event. And I'm I'm wondering like how did you navigate that as as the leader of of 
of this community or one of the main leaders. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I think it. Um, there's two things. One is leader, and one is community. And because we're a community, we have many people who can be so helpful in many different ways. And um, I think the thing that we did was come together. So we came together. Um, people took on different parts during the emergency itself, for example, right away. Um, there was all kinds of different help available. And, um, and then afterwards, we came together as a whole group and were able to express our feelings and our sadness. And we also extended out to people who weren't directly at the ashram, but stayed in communication with them so that they knew what was happening and they could also express their feelings and their sadness. So that was the first thing, is just being in the emergency and being in the loss of the situation. And and from that, um, coming together in a way and and together feeling very strongly so I, I was a leader in a sense, but we were, there was such a consensus that we needed to have the temple again. So, so right away there was um, a decision that we would move forward, and once the damage was assessed, we would decide, can we rebuild the temple as it was? Will it change? What do we have to do to make it happen? How do we keep people informed as we go along? So there was a, um, a lot of activity and a lot of um, a lot of people helping with communication, with with um, working with the with the building itself, and with planning. Yes, yeah, so we we came together and we decided that it would be carry forward some of the main ideas from the original temple, which is that it would be dome-like, have the eight entries in, which symbolized that people can come in through their own path, whatever religion or whatever spiritual tradition or whatever their commitment to the world at this point, whether it's the environment or women's leadership, you can enter through your own door. So we needed those doors. We needed the light to come in through the center. And yet it was a new time. So it felt like this temple needs to reach out. It needs to extend out in a way that the other one didn't. And it needs to be even more open to the world around us. So that, those were design elements that we asked for as we um, searched for architects. And, and that's kind of where we're continuing. We're seeing that the opportunity really is there. And so more than two years later now, we're right in the construction phase. So later this week, we're going to start to see the structure of the temple itself beginning to form, and that's pretty inspiring, and it's going to be uh, beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I, I just wanted to say, I so I was there, I was living at the community during the, when the when the temple caught on fire. Yeah. Um. And I think for me, one of the most helpful things was having the class where everyone told, we interviewed each other, mm. and everyone told their story about where they were yeah. and what their emotions were and what happened. And then we, in a big group, we kind of did a longer 
story with our partner, and then in the bigger group we told the story to the whole group. And I, for me, mm-hmm. that was really helpful mm-hmm. um, during a time of crisis to hear everyone's responses. And some people had responses that were similar to mine, mm-hmm. so that was helpful for me to know that, you know, my response was okay. Mm-hmm. And some people had, like, a similar situation to mine and a completely different response. So mm-hmm. it was, I think what I learned during that time is that, um, yeah, it's, it's we respond, you know, we can be in a similar situation and have a completely different response, and it has to do with our life and our perspective on the world and mm-hmm. and what happened to us before. And, oh, and, right, for sure. And... And it kind of, for me, it felt like a clearing of the air. I had a lot mm. of shame, mm. uh, you know, about what happened and, and the choices that I made. And for me to, to, to say it out loud and to not have the group uh, say I was a bad person or, or, mm. you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, to, was was so helpful. What I wanted to say about what you just said was, um, in a way, like we teach like that in a classroom, right? We go in and everyone has a different response. Like they might do something like walk from here to there and come back and record their observations. And you get a very, each person has their very own perspective in what happens in a in a 10 minute period of time. And as teachers, we go around and we listen to every single person and and every person's response is is their response and and is right for them and is the thing that they're going to learn from. So in a case like um, an emergency, which luckily we don't have fires that often, but it was to bring the practice into action in a different situation, right? And, um, and to recognize and, and see how that how that fire could could and did trigger people's memories so it wasn't just the fire. It was their personal history that was coming up as well as the actual event at the time. But it was what I see there is translating the teachings from the classroom into life, which Mm -hmm. is really what you're talking about, you know, like how can people have courage in their lives it's that same thing. Like it doesn't just happen when you're in a meditation class or somewhere mm-hmm. where it's totally safe. It's like you, it's the ability to translate that teaching into your life that I think is really important. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and for me, in some ways, for me, that's what makes me feel like the community is legitimate. <laughs> yeah, you know, is that it's not just meditate. In the, during the meditation times, it's it's um, in the in the work of the ashram and the and the conflicts that mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. arise mm-hmm. between people in the community that right. the that the teachings are are able to be applied to these things right. that happen in any community. Yeah, it's um, almost like the practice. 
So the practice mm-hmm. of, of practices is one thing, but the practice of interaction and dealing honestly with something is, is the is the other thing. So I always love that about Swami Radha. It's like, okay, yeah, work on this, work on that. Now how are you going to apply it in your life? Mm-hmm. So it doesn't mm-hmm. just stay at the imaginary. It's like, how are you going to make it real? So so now so now that the temple is at a very different phase, um, is there anything that you've learned through the whole? I mean, it's it's not complete, but no. but I but I know it's been two years of. Mm-hmm. Of working and designing and mm-hmm. deciding what kind of wood and what kind of paint and mm-hmm. and and there have been a lot of of decisions to be mm-hmm. made. Mm-hmm. What what have you been what have you learned through the through the process being involved in the process? Well, it's interesting what we're talking about. It's like bringing the imaginary into reality. It's mm. the same thing with this process of the temple because. You know, we start with uh, with our imaginary ideas, just vague. We don't know exactly how it'll go. We get the architects; they start drawing stuff up. Do you like this? Do you like this? So, so then we choose a direction, and then they they draw it up, and we go into a lot of detail about planning. It has different stages, and then it starts to become a little more real as they as they kind of research, well, what kind of construction group could work with us to actually manifest this thing? And then they start talking about prefabrication, and we start looking for people for that. And and um, But as it goes along, it starts becoming more real, and then the budget starts feeling pressure. It's like, oh, at first it was this great idea for this tiny bit of money, and now it's like, well, if you want that, this is how much it's really going to cost. And, and then we have to make decisions about, well, how far can we take this? Um, what what are our limits? And okay. um, I think architects like to have the most beautiful things, and we would like that <laughs> too. <laughs> and yet we have to be real. <clears throat> We're raising a lot of money, and um, but we have limits on what we can do. So there's always, there's always like, big decisions about... Uh, and and sometimes we're we're just trying to collaborate and listen to each other and sometimes it's like we feel like we're not heard or they feel like they're not heard or how do we find the the balance right and so at this point when we're just right on the edge of them um kind of adding the prefabricated parts which are going to create the shell of the temple it feels so imminent it feels like we're going to have a temple again and we're really excited about that mm-hmm. and it's going to be um it's going to be the kind of temple 2.0 it's going to be <laughs> the next phase and it feels like the ashram itself is being lifted up by that next phase and just in some way that we're expanding out and we're inviting people in in a really open way and um some of the things that I've liked are that we've had uh, the indigenous community, the Tanaha people, come over and do a blessing um, of the temple site. Wow. And have stories about their creation stories about the lake. And and we've had um, a group from, from Winnipeg come here as well. So Dakota, Métis people come and do sage purifications and... And it feels good to be getting back to that land level too, and to to feel the calling of the place itself and the sacredness of the ground here, 
and then to be inviting in people whose concerns are the concerns of the world right now. So it's not, it's like the ashram is becoming a very open community and the concerns of the world, because the world is in this place where everything affects everybody, we stand with the environmentalists and with the women and with the all gender people to, to, um, to be equal and to find mm-hmm. a place of refuge. So, so even though it's like a fantastic building, it's more the purpose of the building is more important to us even than the building itself. It really is to bring people together and to be able to talk to each other, to be able to open things up and have dialogue and, and kind of reach that higher level of where our values meet and, and where we come together as human beings on the earth right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so if someone is listening to this and they're curious about this community, um I know I know you have a beautiful website. Mm-hmm. Where can where can people get more information or start start to learn yeah. more if anyone is sparked by this conversation? Yeah, the name of the website, the name of our ashram is Yashodara Ashram and Yashodara is the name of the Buddha's wife who also wanted to become enlightened. So she took a stand for women and opened it up. So the the spelling is Y-A-S-O-D-H-A-R-A dot org, yashodra.org. And um, there's also on there, you'll see, there's the Temple of Light as a drop-down menu. And the first thing you'll see is the temple site. So if you're watching uh, the next while you'll be able to see the temple being installed, going mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. Great. Mm-hmm. So so we're, we're recording this, uh, this podcast a little bit early, um, but we're, it's going to be aired on January 1st, so if you're listening, it's January 1st. It's Happy New Year. <laughs> um, or it's sometime after uh, January 1st. So, Swami Lulichananda, I was wondering if, if there was something you could offer if people are wanting to set their set their intention for the new year or set their direction. Um, is there something that you could you could offer to the people listening? Oh, sure. I thought we could do a little um, reflection and visualization. And um, so I'll just take a few minutes and lead you through. So start by finding a comfortable position. If you're sitting up, um, lengthen up through the back. If you're lying down, which is an option, just relaxing yourself as much as you can on the floor. And now feel into your body and observe where you're holding tension. And breathe into those parts and see how much you can let go. Relaxing. So you want to have a feeling of easy flow of breath. Relaxation in your body. Relaxing your forehead, your jaw, your shoulders. And creating a lot of space within. And beginning to bring your breath to an even rhythm, 
So inhaling to the count of four and exhaling to the count of four. And now see yourself in a beautiful space, a place that you love, a place that feels sacred to you. Let yourself really be there, using all your senses to create the space around you. Continuing to relax and breathe, visualize your sacred space. Listening for what you hear, seeing, smelling, maybe even tasting. Feel yourself becoming one with this space. Feel yourself at a place of acceptance and love. And now see yourself and your life from this place of light and sacredness. Imagine that you're looking at your own life with the eyes of compassion. What do you see? And know that you can come back to this place at any time. And gradually opening your eyes, being back in the present moment, but with the feeling of yourself, your self-acceptance, the strength of who you are that can adapt to change. Knowing that you can tap into this light of awareness and understanding whenever you need it. Namaste. Namaste. So thank you so much for making the time to to talk to me. Yeah, well, I, I hope that um, people can benefit, and I hope to see people here at some point. It's a beautiful mm. place. Well, good to talk to you, Bryn. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so thank you. so much for tuning in to the Courage Compass podcast. To learn more about Yashodra Ashram, visit www.yashodra, that's Y-A-S-O-D-H-A-R-A.org. And I'm excited to announce that it's launch week for the Courage Compass. So January 2nd, we'll be having a free online event called Set Your Direction for 2017, and there'll be more fun throughout the week. To learn more, visit couragecompass.org. And remember, there's no stopping courage when it comes to